Let's open our Bibles uh, tonight to uh, First Chronicles chapter 17. We're making our way through Chronicles, and uh, remember that Chronicles uh, chronicles the the events of the life of the Judean kings. It doesn't spend uh, really any time speaking of the northern ten tribes. Its focus is really on the Levitical priesthood, and specifically that in Jerusalem, in Judah, and, and the kings of Judah, the Davidic dynasty, and it spends all of its time on that. And, and, and it's, it's so important for us to understand that, especially as we look at uh, chapter 17 tonight, as God gives, uh, makes a covenant with King David, and um, it's a really interesting uh, chapter. It's very foundational to the Bible, and uh, ultimately, I think we'll see uh, Jesus Christ uh, in and through all of this, especially as uh, it was God's intention from the very beginning of Genesis, that through the line of Judah, a king would come. And it wouldn't just be David, although the, you know, there was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then from Jacob became these, these, uh, you know, these sons, these 12 sons. And one of them was Judah. And then Jesus, or excuse me, King David came from the line of Judah, as well as Jesus, who would be born a thousand years later through the virgin you know, Mary, and so this promise that God had made to uh, Abram uh, many years ago, or actually he gave that promise to um, Jacob as he was dying. Uh, he, Jacob prophesied over his sons and over Judah, but we'll get to that in just a moment. But what I'd like to do tonight is just to read through chapter 17 it's in, in its entirety, and then just go back and take a look at some other things. So if you would, open your Bibles, and for continuity's sake, I want to read through the whole thing, and, uh, and then we can uh, understand what's happening. So notice in, in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, Now it came to pass, when David was dwelling in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day. But have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another, wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus, says, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, David, God says, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on all the earth, on, on all, on, 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 <laughs> that are on the earth, excuse me. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Also, I will subdue all your enemies, 
Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house, and it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for the honor of your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord, for your servant's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness and making known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like you. Nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who was like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for yourself a great a name by great and awesome deeds, by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt? For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God." And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, let it be established forever, and do as you have said. And so let it be established that your name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God and have promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you have blessed it, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. What an amazing chapter, isn't it? And it just, it just speaks of, of God's promise to David. And that's what a covenant is, is when you make a promise to somebody, it is a, it is a covenant. It's a, it's a, and it's an agreement that you make with somebody else. And unlike today, we tend to break promises. And in fact, the Bible says, you can call it an oath if you want. And the Bible says, even Jesus said, it's better for you not to make an oath. Just don't make any promises because we don't have the ability and the power to follow through on promises all the time. In fact, it's better for us just, just to just say, if the Lord wills, I'll be there tomorrow. Or if the Lord wills, I will be able to make that date. Because we don't know what's going to happen in between. Uh, you could have a flat tire, and there's something in that for you and for somebody else. God delays you for certain reasons. And you may not like it, but sometimes there's divine appointments waiting You're going to speak to somebody. Your attitude is going to rub off on somebody else. Why aren't you all upset? Your tire's flat. Well, I realize that there's a reason for it, and you're probably it. (laughs) 
and you get to talk. And that's happened to me before, and so I know this to be true. But God is the one who keeps covenant. Us, not so much. So God makes a covenant with David. And God's covenant with David was an ongoing promise of what God had spoken through Jacob before Jacob died. You remember in Genesis 49 when Jacob was dying, and I I want to repeat this to you because it is the very beginning of what God was going to do through the line of Judah that he was going to bring a Messiah through the line of Judah. And God gave to Jacob this unction from his spirit to prophesy over his son while they were still in Egypt, before, before they were let go by the next Pharaoh. Notice what Jacob says to Judah, his son, one of his twelve. He says, Judah, you are he, this is Genesis 49, verse 8. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. Remember that. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's Jesus. And where did that come from? Right here. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? And here's the verse right here. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a reference to the Messiah, God in the flesh. It's a reference to Jesus Christ, who came from the line of David, who came from the line of Judah. And it all goes back here. The scepter shall not depart. And then it goes on, and it gets interesting. And this reminds us of a lot of messianic things. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Who does that sound to you like? It sounds like Jesus. It sounds like him on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It reminds me a lot of that. And no doubt this imagery here is there for that reason to bring us to that. So what we are reading here tonight is um, what I just read to you, actually, is, is a partial fulfillment or, or linked to the promise that God made to David long ago. So from the very beginning, back in Genesis, God said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, a lawgiver, between his feet until Shiloh comes. We know that David was born. God gives the promise to David and reiterates this idea of the Messiah and his reign lasting forever and ever and ever. A mortal man cannot live forever and ever, but once he dies and he is resurrected, then he can live forever and ever, and that's what we are hoping for. Any moment now, the rapture could occur and that could, uh, the resurrection would occur and that would be fine with me tonight. Anybody bear witness to that? Yeah. So, so God gave that promise to David and he was being faithful to this verse back in Genesis. It was a partial fulfillment. It was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen, the promise that God would made to David. And God was just con- continuing to, to develop this narrative as the years went on. And I want you to see that very clearly because that's very important to understand. Notice in verse 1, he says, Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. And do you sense in that verse that David perhaps understands there's a disparity here? 
I'm living in a very nice house and it's, you know, it's made of cedar and it's, you know, it's beautiful. And yet I look out my window and I see the Ark of the Covenant with, just in this tent. And I think David in his heart's going, you know, there's just something not right about this. In his heart. And naturally so. I, I think that's a, a very healthy thing to think. And see, that's why I believe God chose David. Because David had a, a tender conscience toward God. He had a tender conscience. He wasn't like, well, I'm the king, I deserve this, and God, you put me here, and so I can have this grand house and all these servants and all this stuff, but you're dwelling in that. That doesn't bother me at all. You know? He didn't choose him because that was his attitude, because it wasn't. David was like, Lord, you're so much greater than me. You're the one who put me here, and I just have a problem with this. And you can hear it in his voice. Here And then Nathan said to him, verse 2, Well, do all that is in your heart, David, and for God is with you. Notice that Nathan, and we've already read the passage, so we already know what happens here, but notice that Nathan did not have God's heart in this, even though he was a faithful man of God. Do you know that that's possible? That even if you're a faithful Christian, even if you're a, you know, filled with the Spirit, you can make mistakes, really big ones. It's possible. David made them. Every single person alive has made them except for Jesus. Everybody that I know has made really big mistakes. And I have made big mistakes as well. And I will continue to make, hopefully not big mistakes, but if I do, will you guys forgive me? Uh, Richard said, "Ah, I don't know. Maybe not. Depends on what it is, bro. But notice, Nathan didn't have God's heart. And Nathan, because of his love and his reverence for God, he couldn't imagine why it would be a bad idea. It sounded like a great idea. But yet he presumed on God's will. He presumed God's will, but he was wrong. He was wrong. And situations like this startle me. And I have to mention this because this is real Christianity. Because when we think we have the heart of God, and then when we come across a situation where we are dead wrong, it, it stops us in our tracks, doesn't it? And then you, get the, then you feel the condemnation. And, and the, the devil wants to condemn you. And, and, and it's certainly good if, you, if you've messed up to acknowledge that. But we don't have to you know, get out our flagellum and pull out our cat of nine tails and start whipping ourselves. You know, and no, just confess it as an error. Confess it to God and move on. The Lord is not... You, you don't hear God breaking through and saying, you know what, Nathan, you're finished. This is like the 490th mistake 450th 70 times 7 490 yeah this is your 400 you know 491st mistake i gotta let you go god doesn't say that he just says no you got to tell him something different i know both of you are your hearts are in the right place you know quote unquote but david cannot build me a house and i bet that startled both of them they're like what why would this not be a good idea? God, you're the God of gods. You're the heaven, you, you, you're the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You deserve much more than just this tent that I've built you, Lord. And God is saying, well, of course. But I never asked to be put in a fancy house. I'm fine right where I'm at. In fact, your little tent, David, can't contain me anyway. The heaven of heavens, the universe can't contain me. I hold the span of the, in my span of my hand, I hold the universe. I'm the creator, don't you remember? Created everything. 
When there was nothing, I created, and then there was. That's how important God is. That's how uh, potent he is. That's how powerful he is. But all is not lost, David and Nathan. All is not lost. They learned a painful lesson, and then we move on with the Lord. That's what we got to do, right? Can you do that when you make a mistake? Because chances are tomorrow you may make a mistake. Are you going to wallow in it forever? Are you going to pick up yourself? Confess your sin, whatever it is, and move on with the Lord. He's not going to rub your nose in it. You will rub your nose in it, and you can bet your enemy, your adversary, Satan, will rub your nose in it as often as he can. Boy, you really don't deserve this. You don't deserve to be called a child of God. You're such a fake and a phony. I know what you're looking at. I know what you thought about last week. I know what you thought about this morning and that email that you got today with the images on the right side and that website that you checked out and you just happened to see that thing. I know you. You're just a rotten scoundrel. And then you can tell the devil, yes, I am a scoundrel, but I'm also forgiven, especially if you've confessed it and you've turned and you've walked toward Christ. See, that's the, that's the goal. But notice in verse 3, it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wherever I have moved with all Israel, have I ever spoken to any one of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Because remember, all throughout the desert... When Israel came out of Egypt, that 40 years of wandering, during all of that time, and the couple hundred years during the times of the judges, and then into Samuel, the ark, symbolizing the presence of God, was housed in a tent. Or, later on, it resided in Abinadab's house, and then Obed-Edom's house for a few days, for three months. God didn't seem to care that David had a nice house and the ark was in a tent, but it convicted David's conscience. But God is not concerned with creature comforts and the things that thrill us. See, we want the, the house with the, uh, you know, the theater embedded in the house with the big screen and the you know, Dolby you know, 12.1 surround. You know, we got to have all that. And God's like, I, I, I made sound. It's no big deal to me. You guys can have all your fancy gadgets, but... So now, therefore, verse 7, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold. Now notice what God is saying. He's rehearsing for David where he came from. And this is humbling, but yet it's a good reminder. I, um, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people. In fact, that's where God found him. Remember when God sent Samuel to Jesse's house, David's father, and he had seven other brothers and and. and Samuel thought that one of these seven brothers, especially Eliab, the tall, handsome one, he must be the king. But it wasn't him. And, 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 and God, you know, each, for each son, God's like, no, Samuel, this is not the one. Well, there's nobody left. Is there anybody left? Oh, there's David out in the field. He's tending the sheep. Well, you better bring him because we're going to stand and wait until he comes. So they do. And God says, that's the one. Anoint him. And he poured oil over his head. But I love the fact that the Lord chose David to shepherd his people. It's significant because David himself was a shepherd. 
God didn't choose a farmer or someone else. He chose someone who understood sheep and all their little quirks and habits, not to mention the care and the protection that's involved in tending sheep, because tending sheep requires patience, it requires endurance, compassion, and yes, even defensive skills. Back in those days, they didn't have a glock for the flock. They had a rod and a staff. David didn't have, you know, a forty-four magnum in his, in his side holster. It would have been really cool, though, if God gave him one, though. It'd make the whole David and Goliath thing really over really quickly. Put a scope on that baby and it's like 200 yards away. No, I'm just kidding. So, so tending sheep, God chose David, a shepherd, because what does the Isaiah tell us? All we are like sheep. And we have, unfortunately, gone astray. And we're also very fickle. And, and sheep, I don't know if you know this, but they're not very smart. And most people, I hate to say it, folks, including myself, we're, sometimes we're not all that smart. We're just kind of going through life kind of like, you know. And we're not really thinking too much. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We're always looking over in the, in the, in the, the field next to us. You know, there's, a, there's, there's rocks here, and I'm, I'm in my own pasture, but that pasture looks nicer. And we're always looking over at the other things. Instead of what God has provided. And people are like that too. And David understood sheep. He was an excellent shepherd. He learned a lot about shepherding. And that's why God could use him. Because David would be the one to go after the the one when the 99 are safe. He would be like Jesus to go after the one. David was a good shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd. Uppercase G, uppercase S. So, verse 8, it says, And I have been with you, notice God says to David, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and, you've cut off, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Now, notice in verse 9, I want to take a, a few moments and just develop this a little bit, because this is um, uh, a doctrine uh, about this idea. Uh, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Underline that. And I will plant them. Notice that they may dwell in a place of their own. And notice, move no more. And also, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. So I just want to take a few moments and just talk about this whole idea of God appointing a place for his people Israel. Because they weren't always in Israel. We think of Israel as a nation, but Israel is the name of a people that ultimately came into the land of Canaan, and then it became Israel. But Israel's name was first Jacob, and God changed his name to Israel. But remember, God began this when he promised Abraham that Abraham's seed, Israel, would inherit the land of Canaan. Now remember, when Israel... Uh, when the Jews were in Egypt and they were under slavery for 430 years. The land of Canaan at that time, what you and I would call modern-day Israel, was inhabited by at least seven nations, and they were Gentile nations. They were perverse nations. They were immersed in idolatry, doing all kinds of wicked things, wicked things so much that God gave them space to repent, several hundred years to be exact, But there came a time when he says, okay, I've had enough. The iniquity of the Amorites is full. And I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt, and I'm going to cause them to inherit that land. And they are going to kill everybody. 
I want them to go in and wipe them out. That is my judgment on these wicked people. And I'm going to have them displace them, and they will take over the land. In Genesis, God spoke to Abram this land, okay, that was promised. This is Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13. And then God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a strange land that is not theirs. Now remember, they hadn't gone into Egypt yet. Abram was, you know, this was back in their history. So know for certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, i.e. Egypt, and will serve them, meaning the Egyptians, and they will afflict them 400 years, which they did. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and God did do that. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, though they shall return here, Abram, the Jews, the people, your, your descendants, they will return back to the land of Canaan where you are standing in right now. They're going to return to this place. And why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. All right, so this, this act, um, this promise was fulfilled, remember, when Joshua brought the children of Israel from the Uh, from Egypt and brought them up on the eastern side of the Jordan River and crossed over westward, crossing the Jordan into the land of Canaan, which is called what? The promised land, right? He brought them in and they wiped out many people. They weren't exactly obedient and they didn't do it all what God wanted them to do, but they did come in and they fulfilled partially that promise. They came into the land fulfilling this promise promise that God had given to Abram. And God reinforced his promise to Israel later on in time when he brought them back into Israel after their 70-year captivity in Babylon. Remember, Judah was taken captive to Babylon in 607 BC. And so God is being faithful and bringing them out of their 70-year affliction and bringing them where? Back to their land, fulfilling at least... um, uh, corroborating and solidifying this promise that God had given to Abram. They're going to come back. This land. And Jeremiah tells us this. While they were still, Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem when all the children of Israel were in Babylon and taken captive. And God spoke to Jeremiah and he said this in 29 verse 10. He says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and notice and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me, and you will go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Do you see how God has been faithful over the span of time? And we're talking swaths of time going from Abraham and now going to the Babylonian captivity we're talking a long time hundreds of years and yet God has always been faithful to bring them back 
And the Lord reinforces this promise again by bringing the Jewish people not only back from Babylon into Israel again, but back to their land. Remember what happened in May 14th of 1948? Not too long ago in the grand scheme of things. They became a nation after being exiled for over 1900, or close to 1900 years. They were in exile, scattered all around the world. And what did God do on May, on May 14th? You can look it up in the history books. Something happened that had never happened before. A people that had been driven from their land came back. They maintained their own identity, their language, everything, their, their history, their culture. It was all intact. And they came, God brought them back. He brought them back. After 70, remember what happened in 70 AD? The Romans coming and, and destroying Jerusalem and the Jews being dispersed all over the world. Well, 1900 years later, somewhere around that time, you know, and then 1948 happens. They all come back to the land again. God being faithful to follow his end of the promise. He is the promise keeper. So when he's talking to David about these things, he is saying to him, David, I have done it in the past, and ultimately I will do it. But it gets even better, because I want you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36, because uh, something happened, it's very interesting, and I believe Ezekiel 36 is a, a partial fulfillment of what happened in 1948. It's not, the, uh, it's not the ultimate fulfillment, but it is a partial fulfillment because God brought them back from the nations, from 70 AD, and brought them back into their own land. And they would never leave their land again. They're there today, since 1948. They're there. And they haven't been driven out. As much as the Arabs and the Muslims have tried to drive them out, they are still there. And there is a certain amount of this that we're going to read. You're going to be like, wow, that is a partial fulfillment. And then we'll look at the ultimate fulfillment, which will be even more exciting. So look at with me at Ezekiel chapter 36. We're just going to begin in verse 24. He says, for I know, for I, excuse me, for I will take you from among the nations. And Ezekiel, remember, was prophesying from Babylon. And he wrote this prophecy that God gave to him. He says, for I will take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of all your countries and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from, what, from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Now, it is true that once they came out of Babylon, they came back to their land but this wasn't a, a complete fulfillment. They came back from Babylon and they rebuilt their temple, Zerubbabel's temple. They rebuilt that temple, but they were still harassed and they still had a lot of troubles. And ultimately, 70 AD would come and then they would be dispersed again. And so God is telling them, I'm going to bring you back. So it's not referring to when they, when they came out of Babylon, per se, and it really wasn't, it was a partial fulfillment, and then Coming back in 1948 was a partial fulfillment. But let's read on because it gets even better. Let me just, um, he's ultimately going to fulfill this when he establishes his kingdom here upon the earth. And I believe Ezekiel 37, go over a one chapter and look at verse 11. 
because God will ultimately fulfill this promise to them when he establishes this promise that we looked at here in this chapter in uh, 1 Chronicles 17 because it fits the best. The millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Israel will finally become in their land and they will never be moved again, this, what God spoke to David, fits the best. And then he said to me, uh, this is Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Remember the valley of the vision of the dry bones? Well, that was chapter 36. And he says, uh, son of man, these bones are the house of Israel. And they indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God. Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am Jehovah. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, Jehovah, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Now, as we have already seen, Israel becoming a nation again in 1948 is only a part partial fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment is in the millennium. Now, as we read on in Ezekiel 37, look at verse 15, and this is really where it gets really interesting. He says, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, as for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for children um, and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, will you not show us what you mean by these, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. So no longer two nations, but one nation. Now, the, the first time that this prophecy could have, where it could have been fulfilled exactly would be in 1948, because they really don't have a king over them. They have a, a prime minister or whatever, but not like a king. But there, there's no longer north and south anymore, is there, in Israel today, even since 1948. But there's still some problems because they still have issues, and they're certainly not born again. The Spirit of God is not in them. Ah, but there's one event that is yet future where all of these things applies to. And he says, then say to them, thus says the Lord, verse 21, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land and I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be ruler over them. Now check this out. This is going to blow your mind. Now I got to tell you, Ezekiel uh, was written sometime in the you know, 6th century, right? Somewhere in the uh, 7th century B.C., Okay. <laughs> And David lived at least 300 years prior to that. Bear that in mind, because what you're going to read here is going to blow your mind, and it could only be speaking of one specific event yet in the future. Notice what it says. 
They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Notice verse 24. Circle this because it's going to blow your mind. David, my servant, shall be king over them. What? David died 300 years prior to this book even being written. How can this be? Is that, was that a typo? Let's look, read it again. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my statutes and observe my statutes and do them. And then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, their children's children, forever. There's another clue. And my servant David. Oops. I guess it's not a typo. Here it is again. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Now, will Jesus be the king over all the, uh, over the whole world? Yeah, of course. But it's, David will be like a regent, a king regent. David will be on the throne, and Jesus will be over it all. Okay, So that's the way to think about it. And you can read Ezekiel 34. It talks all about this idea of David being resurrected in the millennial reign of Christ, and he will sit on the throne of David, and Jesus will reign over it all. Okay, And so that's the idea here. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will establish them and multiply them. I'll set my sanctuary in the midst of them. What? A sanctuary? Well, there's no temple in Israel right now, is there? But the Bible tells us that after the church is removed, there's going to be a temple that is going to be built on the Temple Mount. But that's, this is not the one that that's talking about either, because that one will probably be destroyed or it's going to be insignificant because that's the one the Antichrist is going to set an image of himself in. But Ezekiel chapter 40 through 43, you can read it yourself. The blueprint for the new temple in the millennial reign that Jesus is going to build is unlike any temple that has ever been built. The dimensions are much, much bigger. It makes Solomon's temple, it makes Herod's temple look like Lincoln Logs. It's going to be huge, and it's going to be glorious. Okay, And God is saying, at that time, I'm going to have my sanctuary right in the midst of them, and my servant David will be king over them. Amazing. And then the nations, and my tabernacle shall also be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord Jehovah, sanctify Israel. Right now, the nations don't know. The nations could care less. The nations want to wipe Israel off the map. Even right now, they're hated by all the people. Yes, racism. Do you know that um, uh, anti-Semitism? It's racism, Right? That's a word we all love to hear today. It's the buzzword nobody wants to talk about. But yet the world is united against Israel. They hate the Jews. They are the most persecuted people ever. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. A few thousand years actually. They've always been persecuted. They've been hunted. And God goes on back in our text in verse 10. He says, he's God is speaking to David. He says, Since the time that I commanded judges to be over Israel, also I will subdue all of your enemies, David. And furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. In other words, I'm going to build you a dynasty. That's literally what the word means, is a royal dynasty. There was one dynasty for the, tribe of, or for the, for the southern two tribes. It was the Davidic dynasty, meaning that from David's loins came a son, Solomon. 
and from Solomon's loins came his son, and from his loins came another, and it was never broken. It was one complete dynasty. There was no break in it. But in the northern ten tribes, there were nine dynasties. It was a complete disaster. Even more so than Judah, it was a complete disaster. And then he goes on in verse 11, And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, David, when you must go to be with your fathers. In other words, when you die, I will set up your seed after you. Now, if you might want to make a little annotation in your Bible right above that word and look at Genesis 3.15 because it goes back to Genesis. He will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. Is he speaking of Solomon? Yes. Is he speaking of Christ? Yes. He's speaking of both. Solomon would, in the, in the immediate sense, be his son, but ultimately David's son would be Christ, even though he was David's Lord. Remember that passage? So he will build me a house. Your son, Solomon, and yes, Jesus. He's going to build a house. Which house are you? We are the temple of the Spirit of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ... There's no longer a need for a temple here on this earth right now, for you are the temple of the Spirit of God, because He indwells us. Your heart, your being is the Holy of Holies for now, for now, until He redeems you physically off the earth and changes your mortal body into an immortal one. So He shall build me a house, and I will establish His throne, oh, for a few years. No, it says forever, forever. David was forbidden to build the temple, but David would do everything he could, getting the plans, the blueprints of the, of the temple that Solomon would build. He would get all the materials ready so that when Solomon became of age, he would hand him the blueprints, hand him all the gold, the bronze, the silver, all of the workers and say, here it is, son. I can't touch it, but you take it and you run for the hills. You run and you climb, step on my back and go higher. And that was David's attitude. And that's the way we need to be with our kids. You jump on my back, and I want you to climb higher than I've ever climbed. I want you to, your relationship with Christ to be better than mine. Where I was floundering and flailing, I want you to, I want you to jump on my shoulders, and I'm going to give everything i got to shove you up even higher. And you go for it. Go for it. I'm going to be praying for you. See, that's the idea. That's discipleship. And that's the heart of any father, isn't it? With their sons, with their daughters. Yeah, David prepared the temple. I don't think we'll get there tonight, but in 1 Chronicles 18, it, it tells us that all of these nations that David began to conquer, and with God's help, of course, with God's leading and direction, David would conquer these nations and these kings, and he would take all the gold and the silver and the bronze and all the precious stuff, and he would donate it to the temple so that when his son came to build it, he would have everything he needed. There'd be very little that needed to happen. And that's what David did. In fact, let me just read one short passage. It's in 1 Kings 7, verse 51. It says this, So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And so David helped him. And notice, God says, he will build him a house and he will establish it forever. 
And verse 13 in our text says, I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. Who was before David? What was the king before David was king? King Saul. And he was a horrible disaster. He was a a man that the people wanted and yet he wasn't obedient to God and God had to remove the man because he would not listen. He would not listen to the very simple things. And yet David had a completely different heart. When God says jump, David would say, how high? That's, how, that's David's heart. He was obedient. I remember one time he was going to the, with, uh, into battle with the Philistines, and he, he conquered them. God, he asked God, Lord, should I go in, in, out the valley, the, the, the valley of Rephaim? Should I go out there and attack them? And God says, yes, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna beat them. Go, take your men and go down there and wipe them out. And so they did. And then the next day, another group of Philistines came on the field, and David would be tempted like you and I. Oh, let's just do, let's just do that again. You know? But what did David do? Unlike Saul, David would go, Lord, should we go against this again? And God, God says, yes, but not the same way. I want you to go around them and create an ambush. And you guys stay here, and they have another group that comes up behind them. And when you hear the sound above the mulberry trees, a rushing of the wind, then go, for I I have delivered them into your hand. Notice the the tense. I have. It's already done. Just do it. You guys could just go up there without even probably pulling a sword. You'd probably win the battle because I'm going to do it (laughs) because of your obedience. Isn't this exciting? I don't know about you, but the Bible, I mean, I'm just totally blown at the word of God. I love it so much. And the Lord goes on in, in verse 13, and I will, uh, uh, verse 14, excuse me, and I will establish him, speaking of David's son, and ultimately speaking of Christ, of course, I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom, what? Forever. Solomon lived for 70 years. He had 70 years. It wasn't forever, it was for 70 years. But the kingdom of Christ lasts forever. And it starts. Some would say it starts in our hearts now, and I get that. But in the millennial reign, until eternity, from then on, it'll never end. It'll never end. And it gets even better. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, the eternal state. That's coming after the thousand-year reign. Such a beautiful thing. Read Revelation 21 and 22 to read about that. But notice in verse 15, he says, According to all these words and to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And so from verse 16 now through the end of the chapter, it is literally verbatim as 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18 through 29. It is verbatim, exactly what we've read before when we were in Samuel. But let's go ahead and read it because we've got some things to talk about. So then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. And here David is completely blown because God is giving him this covenant that through your seed, David, I am going to bring a Messiah. And he is going to rule and reign. His kingdom will last forever. And David, obviously, was totally blown by this. And he goes in and he sets before the Lord. And he's just like, Lord, who am I? And he's just worshiping God. He's, he's recognizing his unworthiness. Who am I, O oh Lord, and what is my house? What is this dynasty <laughs> that you've brought me this far? It reminds me of Psalm 8, another psalm of David. David wrote this. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man which you, that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. And I wonder if David, as he's, um, when he wrote that psalm, if he was remembering this event as he sat before the Lord and just completely undone. In verse 17 it says, And yet this was a small thing in your sight, David tells God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And you've regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can I say to you for the honor of your servant? For you know your servant. Notice this word know. For you know your servant. Do you know there's a difference between just knowing something with knowledge and then knowing it experientially? In the Greek, there's a great word, it's called gnosko, and it means that very same thing. It means to know something experientially, to know through experience. It's sort of like a young man who was an apprentice to a plumber. The plumber, who had been doing it for 20 or 30 years, he knows experientially to put dope or to put um, you know, nylon uh, tape around the pipes or some dope around the thing. You know what I'm talking about by dope, right? Some of you guys are like, I know what you mean, but your ladies are going, what? So, but it is New York, but anyway, so... You know, and, and the guy who knows what he's doing, he knows to do that. And the apprentice is like, I don't know, I don't understand what you're doing. He says, well, we've learned through experience that if you don't put that Teflon tape and you don't put that dope around there, that thing's going to leak. So this is what you do. This is a, a secret of the trade. He knows this through experience. Gnosko. He knows through experience. And this is what this word means in the Hebrew. It's the, in the Hebrew word, it's, it's the word yada which means experiential knowledge. And it's the very same word that David would, would, would share with us in Psalm 139 where he says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. The word known is the same word there. You've known me, exper- you know me, everything about me. I can't hide anything from you. You know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word in my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. And David is just, wow, you know me, God. No one knows me like you do. I don't even know myself the way you know me. And it's the same word that we read in Jeremiah where he says, that the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I've ordained you to be the same word. God says that before Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. I knew everything that you would do. I was there before you were born. I, I, I remember, and it hasn't happened yet, I remember before you were born. I could tell you and write out in a, in a book your whole life when it hadn't happened yet. That's how awesome I am, God says. He could do that. I knew you. And so I know your future. And I know, and I've got a hand on you. No one can touch you unless I say so. You're in my hands. Isn't that a good thing to know? Do you know that as a Christian, no one can touch you unless God allows it? And until God allows it, they cannot lay a finger on you. God will not let them. And so when you're worried and you're walking down the street and you see a shadow before you coming at you, I mean, do your due diligence and run, of course, but don't forget that there's a shadow over you that's eclipsing the shadow that's in front of you. (laughs) And that's Jesus. That's God. He's got you covered, literally. Right? Amen. By the blood of the Lamb. Speak it. Yes, it's true. <laughs> so he goes on in verse 19. He says, O Lord, for your servant's sake, 
And according to your own heart, you've done all this greatness and making known all these great things. Lord, you're blowing my mind. Oh, Lord, there's none like you. And there's where worship is, right? There's no one like you. There's no one like him. Have you got to that place in your own heart where you're like, Lord, there truly is none like you. I don't care how much money they've got. I don't care how great they are. I don't care what countries they reside. No one is like you because you are the one who gives power out on loan. Even the evil people have power that you allowed them to have, and they're going to be accountable to that. There's none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for yourself a name by great and awesome deeds, by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. Now, one thing you got to understand is although God loves Israel, he did great and mighty things even in spite of them. Does that sound familiar? Has God done good things in your life in spite of you? Has he done good things to you in spite of you? I'm the first to raise my hand because I am not worthy of anything. I'm worthy to be a little spot on the, on the, on the, on the cement where he smoked me in a bolt of lightning. That's what I deserve. Sorry to be so graphic, but I'm a guy. All right, That's what guys do. Can I get an amen from the guys? Amen. Yes. Women are going, oh, there's too much testosterone in this room. But although God loved Israel, he did great and mighty things in spite of them. Why did he do it? For his name's sake. Not because of them. He loved them, but he did it for his own name's sake. In Ezekiel 36, um, again, um, he goes on and talks to them and he says, um, I did not do all of this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I, Jehovah, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in, your, before, in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of the countries, and bring you back into your land. How much better could that be? Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. The miracle of miracles. If somebody says, well, how, do you believe, how can I believe in God? What, what, you know, give me one thing that I can believe in God. Some people have just said Israel. If you know what Israel's been through, and, what, and everything that's happened, you know their history through the Bible, and even current and current events, you're going to know that God is on their side. Have you read the wars of Israel? Some of the insane things that have happened in the seven-year war, or the, the, the war of a, uh, on the Day of Atonement? The things that God did, the miracles that God did on the Golan Heights with one guy in a tank going up like this and coming back over and coming back. And they thought, the enemy is just seeing this cloud of dust on the other side. And they're like, man, all these tanks are coming up at different spots. And, and, and they thought that was many tanks. It was one guy. It was one guy. That's a true story. How many things like that God has done for them? And they all bugged out. God is an awesome God, amen. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, David says, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, verse 21 and 22 that we have just read uh, give us a glimpse inside the motives for anti-Semitism. And what are you saying? 
Well, God says, these are my people, and I'm going to give them this land, and I'm going, to, I'm going to be their God, and they are my people. Do you understand when God puts his ownership on something or makes a promise, what is the first thing that happens? The devil will attack that thing or that people because they're God's people, and, and Satan hates the Jews. He hates them. God says, they are my people, I'll give them the land of Canaan as their inheritance, and I'll preserve them, and I'll bless them. And the devil knows this concerning the Jewish people, that they are God's very own people forever. And the devil has tried, he has persecuted the Jews, he's inspired anti-Semitism in the world. The devil stirred up Haman, remember the Agagite in the book of Esther? And if it wasn't for Esther stepping in, the whole Jewish people would have, may have been annihilated at that time, but God had his hand on her. She walked into King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, risking her life, and the whole plot was uncovered, and instead of the Jews being destroyed, Haman was hung. But anti-Semitism is racist, and Satan is at the center of all of it. He's the instigator. Even in our own Declaration of Independence, what does it say? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, all men, in the English, the word all means like it does in Hebrew and Greek. It means all. All men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Even in our Declaration of Independence, we are all created equal. And yet anti-Semitism, you look at verses 21 and 22, that's why there's anti-Semitism in the world, because God placed his ownership on those people, on that land. Why do you think Jerusalem has been such a hotly contested piece of real estate? Because God gave it to the Jews to build their temple on. All the promises in the Bible. Why, why, why are people hating the Jews so much? Well, are they perfect people? No, they're not perfect. They're no different than us. But God chose them. And he used them to bring through the gospel to us. He used them to spread the word of God. The devil inspired Hitler, the greatest racist that ever lived on the earth. Adolf Hitler, possessed by devil himself, I have no doubt, he inspired Hitler to murder six million Jews in the 40s during the Holocaust. And the devil ever since has stirred up hatred of the Jews all over the world. The suicide bombers, remember back in the 1990s, the Intifada, the uprising of the Muslims against the Jews, and they would instigate it, and, and Israel would retaliate. And, and, and these things are happen, happening. But anti-Semitism will reach its highest expression in the great tribulation period, when the Antichrist is free to roam, and for a brief, very brief season, he will have control over the whole world, and the Jews will be slaughtered. It will probably make Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, look like it didn't happen. He is going to hunt them down. After the church is removed, Jew and Gentile, there's going to be a lot of unbelieving Jews over in Israel. And the Antichrist, the man of sin, he's going to hunt them down. And he's, he'll seek to destroy them and anybody who believes in the name of Christ. And now, verse 23, And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, let it be established forever and do as you've said. Notice what David is saying here. Because 
what he is saying is, well, there's nothing wrong with asking God to fulfill the word which he has spoken, is it? Is it wrong to rehearse before God the things that he is going to do? The things that he said he's going to do, the things that he prophesied are going to take place. There's nothing wrong with rehearsing before God and say, God, this is what you said. Do you remember you said this, Lord? And God's like, oh, I, I, I can't forget my promise. Don't you worry. I know it looks bleak right now, but I will fulfill my promise. And when I do, everyone is going to drop on their face and hit the ground. Because I am almighty God, God says, and there's none like me. When I speak, things happen. When I say to the ocean, you shall come no further, that water is not going to go past that line ever, if I say so, God says. Never will. And I believe it honors God when David is saying, O Lord, the word which you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning us, let it be established forever. Wouldn't we all say that? When you hear such good news like that, you're like, Lord, do it now. Do it today. And he's like, okay, patient, David. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. And it honors God when we do when we take him at his word because we are trusting in his power and his might to accomplish it and sustain it, and we are not trusting in ourselves, right? The Bible says, you know, trust in the Lord, not trust in man. Don't trust in any politician. No, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Right? That's what the Bible says. Because we can't accomplish anything. But when God wants to work, oh my goodness. You better step back and, and get the video camera rolling. I mean, think honestly, I, I'm still confounded by something. We're almost finished here. I, I, I genuinely am confounded. Was it last year that Roe v. Wade was overturned on a national level? The Supreme Court justice realized that the whole thing was a big sham to begin with? From the very beginning, it is. If you look in the history, it's all a big sham. And finally, they overturned it in one of the darkest seasons of our country's existence. It was almost like a little bright light in the middle of the darkness. Why did it happen then? And not when things seemed to go, be going well, before COVID and everything. Everything seemed like normal, right? Wouldn't it have been nice, Lord, for you to do it then? He goes, no, I'm a, and this is just my thought, okay? I almost wonder if the Lord says, you know what? There's coming up some darkness that you've never experienced, Americans. There's a darkness coming upon your land and I'm going to wait until when it is very bleak and everyone is about ready to lose hope and then I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. And he did. Overnight. He did it. Miracle of miracles. Was it a miracle? You better believe it was. You know how many people have been praying? You know how many prayers have been offered on that behalf? To overturn Roe v. Wade, which again, look into the history. Look into it. It's a big scam. I've read into it. And the woman who they, uh, I forget her name. Um, uh, I should have this name on my, on my top of my head. But the woman who they used, the, the woman Roe, she, she actually wrote a book afterwards and, and refuted everything that they were doing, trying to do to her. They lied to her. It's an interesting thing you should look into. But in our dark, one of our darkest times, and I still think we're in a very dark time, but it was almost like God throwing us a bone, saying, I'm not done, guys. 
I'm not done. I'm going to throw you this to encourage you because you're going to go through it. And we're fighting, aren't we? We're fighting on our knees. That's the most important thing we need to do now. So let it be established, your name. Notice the order here. That your name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. That was David's thought. And then he says, And let the house of your servant David be established before you. But the main thing, the first thing that David mentions was, So let it be established, verse 24, that your name may be magnified forever. And then let the things that you said about my house be accomplished. Do you get my point? The order there is very significant, right? David was firstly concerned about God being magnified. And see, if we keep Christ at the center, if we keep him above everything else, everything else comes after, way below. But exalt him, exalt his name, exalt Christ, lift him higher, everything else much, much, much lower, and you will have the right ingredients for everything. The right ingredient, the right thing to do is to always exalt the Son of God and nothing else. You do that, things change. If nothing else, your heart will change and people around you will change and things change when people are changed. For you, O Lord, verse 25, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore, your servant is founded in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God. And you've promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you. Notice, underline this, forever. Is he speaking about Solomon? Is he speaking about even the Davidic dynasty? Yeah, it lasted for quite a while. You know, it started and... um, you know, it started with, with David and ended in uh, Zechariah. It lasted a long time. But this says forever, so it's got to be meaning something else. And of course it is. It's speaking of the reign of Christ. When Christ comes back in his second coming to the earth, then the millennial reign begins. On this earth, on this earth, with this sun glowing in the sky on this earth. Have you thought about that? The millennium, the millennial reign is happening on this earth, folks. And it's going to last for a thousand years. Think about that. God has already told us that this is going to happen. So do you have to worry about global warming? Do you have to worry about the sun burning out and us freezing to death? No, you don't. You don't have to worry about anything like that because it's all a bunch of nonsense. You believe what God says. You believe the word of God. And you will be on firmer ground than any scientist coming from Yale and Harvard. Do you understand? That, that is the truth. David says, I, I, I've got more knowledge and understanding than the ancients who don't know you. And I'm just a child. I know more than them because I know you. So the moral of the story tonight is to know God. Exalt him, love him, get to know him, get to know his word, and then everything else is going to be just fine. You don't worry about any of that other stuff that they got you freaking out about. Oh, we got to put a mask on now. We got, you know, all this stuff. Don't worry about anything. You just follow Christ. You just follow Christ. Amen? 
So God has made his covenant or his promise to David, as we've seen in this chapter, and he's given great promises to the church, hasn't he? He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you to the end of the age. He also said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It's not going to prevail. Are we going to feel the heat? Yes. Are we going to get a little persecution? Yes. But he's not going to allow the gates of hell to overcome us. It shall not prevail against the church. And that's what Jesus said, so I believe it. And I know it's going to happen. And Jesus also said, what's another promise he gave to us, to the church as a whole? He says, let not your heart be troubled. This is in John 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But here's the promise. I go to prepare a place for you guys because I'm leaving soon. When I ascend to heaven, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where where I am, you might also be. I will come back for you. And when he comes back for the church in the rapture, we're going to be caught up together. The Thessalonians, Corinthians 15 tells us that we'll be caught up and snatched up. Our bodies change in the twinkling of an eye. And we will be with him forever. I love that word forever. Because it makes all my strife and all my struggle and all my sin and the ways I've messed up on this earth, it makes it seem like nothing ever happened. Because in a moment in his presence, it is all, all my heartache and all my heartbreak and everything that I've done to abuse myself and hurt others is all going to be consumed and it's going to be forgotten. In that one moment when I see his face, I will not remember it again. And I will remember my heart and my mind will be cleansed instantly at the rapture. Never to look upon. I won't even remember that stuff. So what has God promised you? And we have to end here, but I just want to encourage you. What has God promised you? God made this great promise to David, and we looked at it in detail throughout the ages What has God spoken to you personally tonight? Or maybe uh, years ago, he spoke something to you. Has he spoke to you personally? Are you still waiting for that promise to be fulfilled? Well, guess what? Sometimes it takes time. Do you know that even with Moses and others, when God spoke, there there were years in between where God said nothing. And then all of a sudden, God shows up and says, now is the time. When you least expect it, he's like, I've prepared you for this and you didn't even know it. Now is the time. This is what I want you to do. And then you do it and then it's blessed. (laughs) What, you mean I I didn't have an opportunity to go to school and get a degree in theology? He's like, you don't need that. Just do what I tell you to do. Obedience. There's enough PhDs in ivory towers, you know, arguing over syntax. I, I don't need people. I mean, they're nice and everything, but I want people to serve me and to love me and to go out and tell people about me. If you can do that, I'm really pleased. Will you? What has God spoken to you? What promise has he made to you? Do you know that he's going to fulfill it? He will not go back on his promise. Why? Because he is the promise keeper. He's the only promise keeper. Amen? Let's stand together and let's pray. Don't you just love the word of God? It's so rich. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for your promises. And Lord, the promise that you made, and the promises that you've made to David, Lord, are no uh, more special than the promises you've made to us, the church, and even us individually, Lord. And we pray that you'd fulfill those promises, Lord, according to your plan and will. And Lord, we thank you tonight for just blessing us with your presence and opening our hearts and our minds. And just speak to us throughout the week, throughout the weekend, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. Help us to be 
just your ambassadors. And Lord, we are here because we love you. And we're here because we want to we understand more of your character, more of your heart as we open your word and study it and read it. And so, Lord, we thank you tonight. And you be glorified in this place and in our hearts, Lord. You be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great evening.